0: Welcome to this fourth and final installment of this teaching series, Women and the Church. My name is Andrew Shea, pastor of Teaching and Vision here at Branches. We're looking at that topic, Women and the Church, answering questions about our theology and practice by looking to God's Word while seeking to encourage over these installments, hopefully you've seen that, a unity and a maturity among believers, even as maybe we have differing views in fellowship with each other. To recap, in the first three installments, we looked at women in the created order and in the kingdom of God. We've seen how Jesus advocated for women in a variety of contexts in the ancient world through the accounts of the Gospels. We identified a thread from Old Testament to New, establishing men as the authority in the household and in the household of faith, which is the church while investigating at the same time what that authority really looks like or is supposed to look like in practice. We also surveyed the scriptures, Old and New Testament, to understand what were the contributions of women. And what we found is that women have made a significant impact and have exercised influence in leadership since the time of the early church and even all the way back to accounts in ancient Israel. The contributions of women were further affirmed in our study last week as we looked at the exercise of spiritual gifts and saw that women are clearly gifted by the spirit just as men are. Even so, we acknowledge there are some contentious passages, some difficult to understand scriptures that seem to prohibit women from even speaking in the gathering of God's people. We had to make sense of those passages in light of the many contributions of women recorded in the scriptures that we've been studying through this series And we had to also look at the context in which those supposed prohibitions are placed. Though we concluded those teachings still have relevance for this discussion, they do not outright limit the participation of women as part of the church in the exercise of their giftings. If you haven't taken the time to absorb the content from those earlier episodes, I encourage you, as I have in every installment, to stop right now and go back. Because what I seek to do in this episode in pulling all of this together into a coherent set of principles and practices for our fellowship, all of that is going to be impossible to grasp unless you've at least examined all the facets of this discussion. It won't make sense unless you've absorbed all that the Bible has to say. But with everything in mind that we've covered so far, my goal right now, as I've said, in this installment, in this episode, is to establish clear guiding practices for us that take into consider all of the scriptural witness that we've surveyed together without selectively emphasizing this passage or that passage to the exclusion of other things that are said in the Bible. We'll also define our leadership structure and set parameters for titling in ministry and set the guidelines for the practice of the spiritual gifts of teaching and prophecy for the Branches community, especially as it relates to Women and their participation in the church. Then I'm going to take some time to respond to those who lie on either end of the spectrum at branches who may disagree with our conclusions. And there are some, even on our staff team, who may find themselves leaning more this way in the discussion or leaning this way, or they might find themselves standing over here or standing over there. So I'll respond to those various views before giving a final commission for all of us moving forward. The goal is to produce clarity and consistency for our culture and fellowship, but we also want to exercise generosity as we seek to encourage that unity amidst our potentially differing views. And as an aside, which is not really just an aside, but a core desire of mine and has been a core desire of mine throughout this entire series, I hope this is unifying for us. I'm praying that this is unifying for us. I mean, you can default to what you know and and write off the passages we've studied as meaning one thing without looking deeply at them. And you can ignore what the Bible says when it doesn't conform to your bias in certain places, but that isn't maturity. It isn't spiritual maturity or maturity in general. We have done the work. We put in the labor. This hasn't been lazy or shotgunned or been based on what someone else has done or said somewhere else. Even if some of you arrive at a different conclusion than what is stated here in these episodes, my hope is that we unify around the maturity that we're all seeking in Christ that I believe has been demonstrated in the branches community as we've developed our position. For me, I feel closer to Christians not because of what they believe about every last thing you can think in the Christian faith but in the why that drives them. That's when I feel connected in unity, when I when I connect with them on the how they go about holding their particular convictions. I mean, I can feel totally united with a strict complementarian, all the way to egalitarians, if their why and how of their beliefs and faith is Christ himself. So many people just want a perfect alignment in what they believe with others at the expense of the proper motives, at the expense of true christ-likeness that's the sad story of christian division through the centuries but hopefully you know my heart and you know my desire and that of the rest of our leadership team is not to appease or to conform to anyone or anything save for the authority of the bible and the love that we all have and share for christ with that heart and given the breadth of this study i ask what does a coherent application in the people of God look like when distilled down into the accepted practice of branches? What is the the place of women in this community regarding all of the scriptural witness and all the information, the variety of things that we've looked at? In short, as we concluded in week two, the household of God that is represented in branches will continue to be led by an all-male elder board, as has historically been the case through all of our history. We believe the Elder Board represents the distinct principal authority of the church in their plurality as leaders together. Now, what are the role of women in the rest of the ministry and church life? Well, per our study in week two of women's contributions and our interpretation of the key passages we discussed in week three, we conclude that women are to be freely and actively encouraged to exercise when it pertains to them and their giftedness their biblically affirmed roles and giftings as teachers, prophets, and as leaders. The prohibition against usurping authority still applies from 1 Timothy 2. There ought to be no woman in branches who seeks to push an agenda in opposition to what is established by the authority of the Board of Elders. The same as there should be no man who's pushing something in opposition or in lacking submission to the authority of the Board of Elders. All who exist as part of the fellowship of branches are called to submit to the pastoral leadership of the board of branches as we all ultimately submit ourselves chiefly under the divine authority of God. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you don't wear out your leaders by just opposing everything they say submit to them because they are ultimately going to give an account to god and this passage is really important to note because it sets our submission to authority any authority in light of them being ultimately accountable to the authority of god i mean we have to always keep in view whether it be a man or a woman espousing truth or leading It is God who is the true authority in any man or woman sharing or preaching of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all of it is derived from, is seen through his ultimate authority. And Even he says in John chapter 12, verse 49, I did not speak on my own but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So we've got to consider when a man or a woman speaks, we recognize that they do not possess authority in themselves, but only so far as they promote Christ's authority overall and submit unto him. And what is of Christ is only brought to fruition in us through the conviction and transformation that comes not by a human being, but by the Holy Spirit, not by their authority, but by the power of God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-7 to says, you know, what is Apollos, this ministry worker? What is Paul, who's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians? They are only servants. You know, all the church leaders throughout history, they are only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul says, I planted the seed, meaning he preached the gospel initially. Apollos watered it. So he was a ministry worker in that area. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. That's our belief in branches. I mean, really the authority, really the power for transformation, the effectiveness of God's word at work in our hearts. It's as a result of the spirit of God, not because of a man or not because of a woman. And of course, it branches irrespective of gender. We believe all conviction and words and transformation that are truly authoritative emerge, like I said, from God's word itself. For 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So think about this with me in practice. When a woman with humility, just as a man with humility, speaks authoritatively by God's word, how is it that a man is not bound by his relationship with God to give an amen and seek to conform themselves, not to the woman's word because it's her word or a man's word because it's man's word, but to God's word because it's God's word. I'll speak to this later, but if any time a woman in any setting Speaking a Bible verse or sharing a prophetic word or a word of encouragement or a teaching, whether it be in community group or at our Sunday gathering, if any time they shared it was seen as some immutable violation of the created order because supposedly Eve is leading Adam in that setting, then women must always remain silent. But if a woman speaks prophetically in the voice and intentions of God, how can or why would a man negate those words if they conform to the truth? Godly men always heeded the prophetic words of women as they were led by God, not as if they were submitting to the self-derived authority of the women themselves, but as they were submitting to God. And none of this is any different when it comes to the spiritual authority that's exercised by a man. Again, I want to really dissect and respond to those who disagree with this. And if you do disagree with our conclusions on this matter. Don't miss what I'm going to say later on in this installment. Recognizing, though, that we affirm the capacity and ability for women to lead and influence others through roles of teaching, preaching, and prophecy, and submission to God, what should one conclude regarding the official titles and roles of women in ministry? Well, it's already established in branches that the role of elder also called overseer in the Bible. Those two words are interchangeable as you go through the New Testament. Elders are overseers, overseers are elders. We've already covered that that role is reserved, that title is reserved in our community for men, given our complementarian understanding of the Bible. But what then of the role and title of pastor as it relates to women? You know, we all take our church traditions into this discussion because the title of pastor has meant many different things in many different places. In fact, in some churches, the title isn't even employed at all. You know, my, my, my grandmother, she was Catholic. She always referred to me as Reverend, you know, because she thought, well, that's what they do in denominational churches. Hey, Rev, she would always call me Reverend. And that's that's how some people would refer to their spiritual leaders in Christian community. They wouldn't even use the title of pastor, which would shock some of us who have very strong feelings of affection and a strong relationship to the way that the title has been employed in our tradition. You know, in many communities, if we just survey them, the biblical role defined as elder and overseer, remember those two are the same thing biblically, is seen as synonymous or the same that is interchangeable with the role of pastor, or the role that we have of elder overseer is subordinate to the role and title of a pastor. So, you know, I'm identifying two contexts here in which it's utilized traditionally. People will look at pastor as the same thing as elder and overseer, or sometimes they'll see that the elder and overseers are in submission to somebody who has even higher authority, who's referred to as a pastor. For instance, in some church leadership structures, you know, the role of an elder, it makes up sort of like this advisory committee called the the board of elders or the elder board, endowed with very little actual authority, unlike the branches community. And it's that one pastor, as I said, who exclusively functions as the principal authority of the church, the authoritative head for their community. In effect, the pastor ends up being the single and sole supreme authority in the entire congregation of believers. That's the conviction of branches, this community, that such models of leadership do not promote the level of accountability required and needed in local churches, nor do those structures accurately convey the assumed leadership structure of the early church in the New Testament to the present day. To be clear, we don't see the title of pastor in this light as some role of single and sole supreme authority. Now, in other communities, like I mentioned, it is the elder board that functions as the principal lead for the community, but all elders carry that title exclusively in their communities of pastor. It's all seen as the same thing. They could just conflate all the terms. Elder is overseer, is pastor. Elder is pastor. Overseer is pastor. Pastor is... Elder. You, you see what I'm trying to say, right? I'm beating a dead horse. Such a conflating of terms, it's understandable when you look at the Bible. But in our view, that's not a precise translation of biblical terminology as seen in the scriptures. It's worth noting that if we had these leadership structures, either one that I've just identified, with the pastor as the principal authority, or all elders being defined exclusively as the pastors of the church, these titles being interchangeable, then we would not use the title in reference to women because it would represent the principal authority we believe is biblically reserved for men. I've already covered that. But here at Branches, we have always, this isn't a new thing, we have always distinguished the title of elder and role and title of elder overseer from the title and role of pastor. Those have always been different roles and titles. Now, why have we distinguished those two things and not put the terms together and not placed a pastor over the elder board in our structure? Well, in the Bible, the descriptive title of pastor simply conveyed the word picture of a shepherd, and was used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as a general leadership term employed to describe the relationship between several different types of leaders among God's people with the rest of the community. It could refer to the king. It could refer to civic leaders. It could refer to the priesthood, elders in the community, the high priest. And it also could refer to God himself. He refers to himself often as a pastor or a shepherd. I think a very important text that conveys what being a pastor really means is found in a chapter of God's judgment being spoken against the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 34. As God proclaims judgment against the shepherds of Israel, that is the pastors of Israel there, he's not speaking about just the high priest or one specific role or title among the priesthood. Yes, he's speaking about them. But he's also speaking about the civic leaders he's also speaking about the elders of the community in general as he proclaims his judgment let's read that passage there because you're going to hear what being a shepherd a spiritual leader is really supposed to entail it's a passage of judgment as i said against the shepherds the leaders of israel ezekiel 34 the word of the lord came to me son of man prophesy against the shepherds of israel prophesy and say to them this is what the sovereign lord says My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill they were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, that is all the leaders of Israel and all their various posts, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself, I love this promise, will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As we can see in Ezekiel chapter 34, the word picture of a shepherd is one that conveys how spiritual leaders in general are supposed to relate to God's people. A shepherd does what? We saw all these word pictures there that convey what all these different leaders were supposed to be doing. They're called the guide to nurture, to care for God's people as one among them, protecting them. Now, there are a variety of roles in the branches community where one might be guiding, nurturing, and caring for God's people through a role of shepherding, including, you know, let's recognize those who are serving as small group leaders, those who are children's ministry teachers. Are they not guiding and nurturing and caring for young people and for the volunteers? What about our worship leaders? Now to clarify, in the way that Branches understands the scriptures to employ the term, and in the way Branches utilizes the title, there is a logical requirement for, yes, all elders to functionally relate to the congregation and everybody in it as pastors, and that they shepherd God's people as those who serve rather than rule, just as a shepherd does with their sheep. And that's what God is saying. Look, you can find that anywhere in the world. People are using their leadership position and their authority to rule and to extort and to get something from people. But I, I myself, God, I'm a shepherd. I care for, I nurture, I protect, I lift up, I feed and care for my people. And I expect the leaders of my community, both civic leaders and spiritual leaders, whatever role they have, to take care of my people at their own cost, just as I do. So of course, you know, our elders, our overseers, the elder board, ought to function as pastors over the community at their level of leadership. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. to Peter says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, is one of the reasons the term pastor gets conflated. It becomes the same in some cultures with that of the title and role of elder, because all elders ought to do the work of pastoring. But to pastor is a verb in this passage it's not a noun or an official title here just like in ezekiel chapter 34 it speaks to the spiritual leaders of god's people not taking advantage of those they serve as worldly leaders do but employing a leadership that cares for others and nurtures them at the cost of oneself just like a shepherd does in the field for their sheep so of course as i've said it's required for all elders and overseers at branches to function as pastors in the oversight of the community but Branches does not consider all people who carry the title or the descriptive title of pastor as elders. And they never have been throughout our entire history. We've had pastors on staff. We've had different various volunteer roles that employed the title of pastor. And that did not automatically mean that they were serving on the elder board or held some sort of sole and supreme authority in the church. For an example, a pastor might be over kids ministry shepherding and guiding children and families toward Christ. Or they might be a youth pastor aiding in the spiritual formation of youth into the image of Christ. But simply having that title does not mean they automatically hold that higher office on the elder board and are instantly endowed with a role of authority over the community as a whole. To further clarify additional aspects of the branch's leadership structure, no one man or woman may hold the title of the pastor of branches for the shepherd of branches we believe is Jesus himself per first Peter chapter 5 verse 4 the verse I just read but you see that again proves that the title is descriptive of spiritual leadership in general just holding the title of youth pastor doesn't mean you're on the elder board but just holding the title of elder or being an overseer who pastors does not mean you're automatically elevated to the role of like the chief shepherd right You know, the the role and the description of the role alongside the title pastor implies where that authority, where that exercise of nurturing or care or guidance or formation is being exercised. And the chief authority in the church is always going to be Jesus as the chief shepherd. Additionally, it must be clarified out of coherency with branches beliefs that only a man and not a woman is ordained with the title of lead pastor given that the lead pastor per our bylaws is a permanent sitting elder of the branches community that's the role that i hold at present branches has elected to provide ordination which is a very spiritual term that not everyone knows about right it's a very religious term i should say maybe not spiritual all the time But ordination is that process of setting someone apart for a role of ministerial authority. And we reserve that only for the lead pastor in recognition of the uniqueness of the position as a permanent sitting elder and as a functional leader for the staff team. However, in light of these clarifications, women may hold other qualified roles that include the descriptive title of pastor as they are entrusted with the spiritual guidance and care for those in the ministry area under the oversight of the elder board alongside other pastors on staff. I mean, how do you logically and rationally distinguish between a male and female youth leader? I mean, when they both care for and lead and nurture and build up our youth, they both do the same job. So are we supposed to conclude, though they're doing the same work, one is a youth pastor You know, the the male is and then the female, we give her a different title like, oh, she's the youth director. You know, why use a secular term for leadership when we're speaking about a spiritual role of leadership? That's what's being employed. What sense is there in differentiating? But assigning that title of youth shepherd or youth pastor does not automatically make them part of the sitting board of elders. I mean, that's the clarifications we've got to make in this discussion. Now, having established some guidelines and practices for the Branches community, I want to respond to believers in our community who fall on different ends of the spectrum of belief on this disputable topic. And it is disputable. You know, there's core convictions and core doctrine, our statement of faith that we're going to hold to as a Branches community. And look, if you don't hold to those core convictions and core doctrines, quite frankly, there's some issues there, maybe even with like just Orthodox Christian faith. But when it comes to what we're establishing here we're acknowledging that this is disputable that there's other ways of looking at it that there's other valid ways of interpreting the scriptures but you know i want to respond to those because you know this is about dialoguing and thinking through uh, where people might land on the spectrum and and i want to challenge you in your study and i want to also affirm you uh, no matter where you land i want to start with those who do not believe women should teach or hold any role of influence and who disagree with women carrying the title of pastor as I'm suggesting right here is the proper use of the term. That would be people who are, you know, still calling themselves complementarian as we do, but, you know, there's a lot of shades of complementarian, a lot of different applications just given that one term and and they might see themselves more as like a strict complementarian. If you disagree with our approach and the way that we've looked at this and, and you set aside i mean effectively in that view the the broad witness of the new and old testament's regarding these you know really substantial i mean i don't know how you get around it there's really substantial contributions of women but if you do that you set that aside and if you set aside the the cultural setting of the ancient world and the context that we got into in in the previous installment of certain passages and it, it, if you do all that and if you read and take at face value alone the prohibitions regarding women recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, and you employ them as prescriptive timeless commands for all places and times, then you should logically conclude that women should really have very little participation or public visibility in the life of the church in general, remaining silent in the gathering of God's people and rarely if ever addressing men in any setting at all, which was the norm in much of the ancient world. You should really adopt the perspective of the disciples who were concerned when they saw Jesus even talking with a woman in public, as we see in John chapter 4. I mean, it was that outlandish to them, culturally speaking, back in the day. Individuals who exclusively and artificially resist the role of women teaching in the pulpit but then make allowances for them to lead worship and preside over prayer or administrate and oversee male volunteers or or oversee ministries, may it be in any ministry area. I mean, if you consider like, oh, you know, women can't teach in the pulpit, but they can be, you know, youth leaders and they can teach youth. Well, in the ancient world, youth were already seen as adults much earlier than we would conceive of them to be adults. You know, if you're adopting that position uh, where you're picking and choosing where women can participate and where they can't, where they can express their giftings in public and where they can't, I really think you're living in an incoherent and inconsistent position. If you claim to support outright those, those interpretations of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you say they're broad and binding today, because in that interpretation, those passages plainly say women should be utterly silent and exercise no authority whatsoever. If if you're interpreting it that way, then you've got to just hold to that plainly from what you see on the surface all throughout your application. Then what happens at community group? I mean, this is a gathering much more akin to what the early church would have looked like with each person bringing something, a teaching, an encouragement, different gifts being exercised. Are you holding to your application those passages, the way that you interpret them? Are, Are you keeping the women silent there? Because of every time they speak, or claim any form of binding truth, you are assuming that it's getting created order out of whack? And and what about the secular workplace then? How can you take direction from a woman anywhere if it violates an immutable principle of God formed at creation? If you want to read those passages without any context and make it binding for teaching on a Sunday, then you should have already felt violated in your convictions through the participation of women at all anywhere in the mixed gender setting of the branches community over our past 13 years. I mean, the context is, as we examined in week three, that in Corinthians, the disorderly gathering was being interrupted by questions from uneducated wives who needed to direct their questions to another time. We have order. We have education broadly available today. It's a different context. In 1 Timothy, Chapter 2, we find that in Ephesus, women were usurping and unilaterally exercising authority over men through their teaching as Eve usurped Adam. They were not to tolerate that behavior back then, nor will we tolerate that behavior today, as all men and women who teach on a Sunday submit to the principle, authority, and core doctrine established by our male elder board. If you want to throw out all that context, and you want to selectively limit women to certain roles, and the expression of certain giftings, I challenge you to pray and reconsider if you aren't being guided by your traditions and what you're accustomed to and by your preferences more than what the Bible and the scriptures testify to themselves. Often churches that do hold to you know, a very rigid and consistent strict complementarian viewpoint and, and adopt, you know, that sort of strict and what I would contend is an out of context reading of First Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, they have to go so far as to adopt head coverings and domestic definitions of marriage that can be pulled straight from first century Judaism. I mean, you start saying, well, you know, nothing is culturally formed and nothing is, is just for that time. It's all timeless. Well, then let's, let's do all of it. Why? How do we pick and choose? You know, ironically, those same communities often produce an image and standard for women derived from the errancy of culture that effectively negates the multitude of passages in the New Testament reflecting women's prominence. And even the ancient Old Testament example of the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, that's what was going on in first century Judaism. They weren't even acknowledging what was in Proverbs 31 spoken of the prominence and value and contributions of women. It's a selectively strong interpretation. A lot of people say, well, I'm interpreting the Bible really strong. Well, it's a selectively strong interpretation, I would contend, of certain passages that you're using to absolutely eclipse the value of many other Bible passages that speak to the active participation of women as ministry co-laborers, apostles, teachers, prophets, evangelists, and even funders of Jesus' ministry. And so these individuals, if you're holding this, I think you're revealing a selective value for parts of the Bible over the whole of the witness of the scriptures. Guys, that's not what we've done. We didn't import this from someone else or something else that was going on. We went to the Bible, the whole Bible, and put these pieces together without negating any of them. Now, even amidst a clear and stated disagreement with stricter forms of complementarianism, and, and you've seen that. I mean, I've been clear that, you know, there's there's disagreement here. I, I, I'm challenging. i challenging. I'm, I'm pointing back to the scripture. I'm pointing back to the text that there's dispute. We call these disputable matters for a reason. Even amidst that, I need you to know that we rigidly affirm that all those who hold those views, that's you. You remain a full participant in God's kingdom. And you are to be considered, you know, fully part of the branches community. One of our brothers and sisters, just as those first century Jews who first upheld the same norms, we look at them. They're part of the kingdom of God. You know, they're brothers and sisters in the family of God. If you've heard me out and you've taken your time with this study, if you've taken some time post this study and looked at the scriptures for yourself and actually looked up my references and you've come to a coherent, and clear and consistent interpretation that still lands in maybe that view rather than the view that I'm promoting here. Well, I wanna personally, and I think our elder board as a whole wants to, to bless you. Just as their way in the first century wasn't inherently wrong, nor is the branches way inherently right because of the way that we look at, or they look at and define relationships and structures in the life of the church. As I said, in the first week of the series, you know, it's always the heart and conscience before the Lord that makes one right or wrong in cultural discussions. Look at look at Romans chapter 14, really read that because there's different views in the disputable matters and it wasn't necessarily, you know, what they were doing that made them right or wrong. You know, and there were different parties. It was how they were doing it. It was with what mindset. It was with what care they were doing it, it toward their brothers and sisters that really mattered. So the same here. I mean, women who submitted to different standards and sought the Lord's will in the first century or the 10th century or the 20th century, for that matter, they're no less worthy of the kingdom of God, nor will they be less rewarded because their circumstances and environment dictated where they were able to invest their giftedness. The same is true for women who exist in strict complementarian contexts of the church today. There's no pride or advantage or superiority in the branch's position. Just the best understanding of the scriptures that we've arrived to to date with the most consistent application that we can surmise and that we can apply ourselves to. That's what we've come to. Not a place of superiority, just a place that we see is consistent with what we find in the Bible. Now, what I just said, those, those attitudes and views apply equally in the other theological direction, toward Egalitarians toward those who see no distinction in role or function between men and women in the church, they, or possibly you too, if you're listening to this, you have your defining scriptures and understanding of certain passages that leads you to such a conclusion or them to such a conclusion. One such keystone passage for egalitarians is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which states, There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Based on that passage and others, egalitarians will contend that many, if not all gender distinctions are culturally formed and that the ideal represented in Galatians 3 and in their view, the ideal represented in other places in the Bible, such as in Genesis before the fall, The ideal is to remove any distinctions between the genders, paving the way for men and women to exercise co-equal authority as a reflection of their co-equal value and status as inheritors of God's kingdom. I think all, I would hope all, I believe all across the spectrum of belief would agree on the value and status of women in God's kingdom. But we do not all align on removing all distinctions based on gender. Reflecting on Galatians 3, the leadership of branches does not believe it is necessary to conclude that many or all distinctions are removed between men and women, whether they be biological or related to domestic design or church life, based on the intent of that passage. The clear intent of that passage was to convey the equal access all have to God across cultural dividing lines of gender, socioeconomic class, and ethnicity. Paul did not nullify, nor did God erase there or anywhere else, the functional differences that existed and exist between Jews and Gentiles, those of different social classes or between men and women in general. What he sought to eliminate was the perception that one must view themselves as inherently second class to another in God's kingdom based on earthly distinctions and cultural constructs. But again, many egalitarians, apart from key passages like Galatians 3, will simply contend that their distinction in roles between men and women, in terms of authority, it's purely a byproduct of the times of the Old Testament and New Testament, and that times have since changed. No doubt times have changed and continue to change. I think we can all agree on that. I think we can all agree. Everything seems to be up for blind reinterpretation in our culture today without thinking of the consequences that may result culturally in the future. We are doing that at Branches, but it isn't just based on our preferences. In our thinking, what makes the argument for male authority in marriage and in the household of God so strong is that it is demonstrated in the book of Genesis and there are so many passages that tie back to created order in the New Testament. It's reaffirmed again and again. That order in male and female relationships was established before sin and does not appear to be a product of the fall or of sin. Now, the way that authority has been expressed in the modern world and in history, I will admit, has been grossly, grossly diluted because of sin. So I sympathize with the instinct to push back on that structure for male-female relationships. But we addressed what the exercise of that authority is really supposed to look like back in week two of this series, in installment two of this series, in the example of how Jesus exercises authority over the church. And I have no doubt all abuses of authority through time will be addressed by Jesus himself, to whom we will all one day be held to account. We should keep in mind whether or not you or I find ourselves comfortable with these understandings regarding the practice of authority and submission in the church. Realize that every single believer alike is ultimately called to submit to God, submit to his supreme authority, a reality that I think we can acknowledge that's difficult for both men and women alike. Before moving on, I want to affirm again, even as egalitarians make View Galatians, and they may view other key passages like those in Genesis differently and seek different applications as it concerns the place of women in the church as a whole. They too are not secondary participants in branches, nor are they less enlightened in the view of us as branches leaders. Though their view does not reflect the practice or stated beliefs of branches leadership, egalitarians too are encouraged to see themselves as full participants in Jesus' church in this gathering as well of God's people, even as their view on these matters differs. Let me conclude with these thoughts, that Christ can make all stand and guide everyone through their journey of understanding his will and purpose. I've been citing Romans 14 many times, but I just love what it says in verse four. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. That's keeping in view the fact that we're all ultimately submitted to the Lord's authority. We're all servants of him, and if we're serving him through this practice or this way of thinking or that way of thinking in this practice, well, guess what? It's not each other that defines whether those servants that differ from us are going to stand or fall. It's the Lord that's able to make them stand, and Paul is confident in their differing views, they're all going to be able to be made to stand because of Jesus. You know, in every age where there are changes in culture, those changes are driven by people with a variety of different motives. And and there are a variety of different motives for the changes going on in our culture today. And, And that can be confusing. And anytime there are those changes in culture with those variety of motives, there's stress on the people that make up the society that's in that place of change. And sometimes that stress and the challenge of it, it's even more pronounced for those of us who are in the church because we don't wanna just do right in a cultural you know, sort of way. We wanna do right before God in an alignment with the scriptures and in an alignment with what is truth. Though views and beliefs may be different as we Christians walk into the future together, as we deal with some of these pressures around us, the need remains for all of us To keep a calm and clear head, a clear vision around the value of unity above any real or perceived differences that we may have among each other. Go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17 before the cross. What was he praying for? What did he seek? What was he accomplishing through the cross itself as we talked about in week one? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. The command is make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Christ is our peace. He is stronger than our differences, is he not? Are you gonna contend that our differences of thinking or practice are stronger than Christ's ability to keep us one? There is only one Holy Spirit. There's not a multitude of Holy Spirits. There is one Holy Spirit who fills all believers, all the believers who are feeling differently on these matters. Knowing that is enough for me to be able to respect and love and fellowship with everybody around me who claims Christ. Remember, it's only in unity that the church can grow together in its understanding. And it's only in the unity of the church above all else that we can fulfill the scriptures and we can fulfill the will of God to reflect Jesus' heart and God's heart for the rest of the world. If that unity is best promoted by keeping some things, including one's view on these matters, in confidence before the Lord, or if it involves withholding judgment on a brother or sister regarding their understanding, then those are seen as acts of worship which honor every Christian's shared Lord. Again, that's Romans 14. Of course, we in leadership at branches aspire to encourage a culture of shared dialogue and continued learning, but that without engendering discord. And disunity. As those who place their faith in Jesus and are filled with his one spirit, believers are inextricably linked to one another. We are brought together and there is nothing that can take us apart from each other. We cannot be anything other in Christ than his shared body, even in our array of beliefs and practices. I'm confident that when God brings the full realization of his kingdom, All will hear of the way that he worked through all believers, those who were strict complementarians through history, those who are strict complementarians today. God is working through them. We're going to hear about what God has done through them. We're going to hear about how God has worked through egalitarians who have a different view than those other believers. All that is going to come together when we're all awash in the grace and glory of God. Until then, all are encouraged to hold They're disputable and debatable convictions with thoughtfulness, compassion, and humility, never relinquishing that teachable spirit required of all believers. Should the Lord choose to develop our understanding in a different way as we go through life? I mean, how many of you have felt the same way about every single one of your core convictions in the faith 10 years after you came to the faith? No, you've been developed in your understanding, right? You've had a teachable spirit. This may have just like kicked off the start of a journey for you, in discovering and praying about and considering the scriptures in a deeper way. So, I mean, we got to hold our convictions today with humility and that teachable spirit, knowing that the Lord could continue to develop our understanding into the future. We trust in God's ability to guide all people into his perfect purpose and in his capacity to ensure love is always kept the guiding virtue in the diverse family of God called the church. And now I offer these teachings... And everything that I've shared with you as a gift to you to nourish you in your journey of understanding, to be a, a tool to sharpen you and to get you to think deeply and biblically about these matters. And I offer myself, and I know the rest of our elder board and our staff and other leaders offer themselves to you to be somebody who can walk with you on a personal basis. Should your level of conviction or concern or your questions rise to the level of discord, or you just want to you just want to discover more? I hope to be somebody who can model that I'm going to listen first and share grace with you as the Lord keeps us one together. Thank you for listening and applying yourself to this important and edifying discussion that we've entitled Women and the Church.